and no. And then I saw those old boys that were going to be soldiers maybe one day. And, and that's when it started to hit me that we got to help those little babies who become soldiers and protect this country. And you couldn't do it for Kyle, but you got to do it for them. And, and I didn't know what that looked like, but that was really my first aha God moment where, I mean, there were a lot of God moments, but that was the moment, the defining moment for me that, Leslie, it's time. Get back to Gig Harbor, find your way, and find a way to honor Kyle and help other soldiers. So the road trip back was pretty incredible. I had $900 to my name. <laughs> And I had tires that were filled, and I had love and an oil change and well-wishers for this little community that I'd made down there. Mm -hmm. And love, love, love. And my aunt... Here you are again yeah, going here, back. Yeah. The same. But yeah. With it was Memorial Weekend. Huh. And uh, Memorial Weekend, the, the other part of that story that, that propelled me to go back Memorial Weekend is that I had left some things in storage up here, mm -hmm. and I got a certified letter in the next weeks that said, we are going to implode this building and all of your things in the storage are going to be either destroyed or you need to get them out of there. It's a sign. It was a sign. <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me. And I didn't want to ask any of my friends or family or my son-in-law to do that job for me. Mm -hmm. I already asked so much of them. You know, I felt like they were just carrying me for so long. So I said, okay, I got to go. And so... But the beautiful thing was, is on my way back, I started seeing a little bit of color. Those mm -hmm. cactus flowers had color. Those mountains in in uh, New Mexico and Arizona and and all that, they started. I see started seeing a little bit of sunset. Not a lot, but just wow. enough to remind me that I was on the way. So this is the cool part. I go visit my sister very briefly. Um, then I I go to every every beach that there was an opportunity for me to park and sit and um every beach and then i get up to this little town called weed again to that same little motel now this is six months later and i thought you know just on a whim i'm going to go into the office manager and i'm just going to see if by some chance back in january they found that guitar in room number nine that was my son kyle's football number so that no. that's why Kyle's mile is mile nine hmm. I'm just gonna go see because I'm sure someone has taken it or is gonna use it but you know what I walk in there this is a little motel it's a little motel <laughs> yeah. this is a little weed motel <laughs> I think that's all there is and I go in there and it's almost like they recognize me because I said you know you may not remember me but this is my name and I stayed here with my son back in January I said and he left his guitar Miss Maine, we've been holding that for you. No. I said, you're kidding me. And of course, now the tears are yeah. down. You what? You've been holding that for me? Yes, we, we, we just felt like we couldn't give it away. We couldn't sell it. And we tried to get a hold of you. And we couldn't. And so it's here. And they went in the back room. And they gave me the freaking guitar. And, and again, now for me, that was a sign. Yeah. And you can make what yeah. you want out of it. But at the very least, it was one of the most loving mm. outpouring of um, affirmations that um, and it, it was just something else. 
So then I got back home and, you know, um, I mean, you know, I didn't really have anywhere to stay. I couldn't stay with my children and they let me stay there a little bit. My sister, my brother, I mean, I, it just, I had, I had some pride at that point. <laughs> I started getting pride back. And, um, I mean, everybody took me in a little bit here and there. My friend Sue Brayton, up to stay at the Wesleyan. Uh, anytime I wanted to, anytime I wanted to shower. Um, I mean, I did sort of live out of my truck a little bit. I know my kids just absolutely recoil when they hear me say that, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I did what I had to do, you know. Um, but at some point, I found a little place to live in, and um, I, my friend Kathy at the Tides, who was the, the general manager at the Tides, said, Leslie, just get come back. Be a be a busser for right now. When we get a server position, we'll we'll find it. But just do this. You're good at it. We need you here. I need you here. Um, you need us. Just be. And um, I told Peter Stanley a couple of weeks there last week when I was speaking at the Rotary Club. I always try to embarrass him when I see him there. Um, his son Dylan owns the Tides Tavern now, but Peter owned it at the time. And I sort of give him a bad time. I I just but I also praise him. Because they really allowed me to grieve at the tides. If, if I mean, it was, and it was a very painful time only because I'd just gone through this divorce and, and uh, it was sort of a public divorce. And, yeah. you know, the person I was married to had sort of a status in the community mm -hmm. for a while um, as a coach. And, and so people knew me. And so a lot of the, Families that knew about this and what had happened with and, and then my son and so people would come in to sort of either dig up the dirt find out how I was doing like it was just it was like in my face every day so it forced me to reckon with my what I'd run away from mm -hmm. and so it forced me to either be Jerry Springer or Kathleen Hepburn and I had a little bit of both you know I had a little bit of both moments mm -hmm. but the tides allowed me that you know not how many jobs will allow you and if I had a moment where somebody came in and reminded me of something that triggered my heart mm -hmm. and I'd have to walk out on that deck and just sob they let me and then I'd go back in and do my thing now eventually it wasn't that I was a bad employee but I was limited in my emotion my emotions were raw so once I moved into the uh, server role where I made a very good salary and I was in my 50s, kicking ass at the tides. <laughs> and if you've been in the service industry. For all industry, of you young yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, try it, man. It, it's brutal. And if you've been at the tides, especially in the summer, man, you yeah. know, it, it's. Um, oh, you but all these people, all these wonderful family at the, that I still call my family, just loved on me and allowed me that privilege of working alongside of them. And then Peter let me shake down everybody so it was not like so when it came into my heart that we needed to do something for our servers yeah. or our, ser our servicemen and women so Kathy says we were in the right place I was in the right place so Kathy says yeah. Leslie you love our soldiers what what should we do for them I said well in the perfect world anytime a serviceman or woman comes in here we should buy a beer for them buy a cup of chowder and fish and chips they should never have to pay for a meal she goes well I'm not sure we can do that but what can we do instead I said well then let's Buy a soldier lunch. I'll find the soldiers. You put the lunch out. We'll have a party. We'll bring red, white, and blue in. 
We'll um, have cakes. We'll we'll let them know they're valued, they're loved, and they'll never be forgotten. She goes, you're on. So I had three weeks to plan it, and I got a couple other servers alongside of me because both their husbands were in the service the military. They're both friends of mine still. And um, in in three weeks, we raised thousands of dollars because what we did is we put a fishbowl at the end of the bar, and when customers would come in, we'd say, on October 15th, 2010, we're going to buy a soldier lunch. Mm-hmm. And we want you here, but what we want is we want your money too because we want to be able to do this for them in a very generous way. We're going to show them what Big Harbor's made of and that we do care about our military. So October 15th, 2010, that place was jamming. It was standing room only. I brought 80 Green Beret in um, who were just about to leave for Afghanistan. And it was the most absolutely beautiful display of affection, a demonstration of respect and love that I don't think, well, they told me, some of their colonels said, we've lived in a lot of towns. I've been in the Army for 20 years. I've never seen anything like this before. And again, what it did for me, as I'm walking out, the day is over, and everyone's had this amazing time. I walk out of there, and um, somebody walked up to me and said, well, Leslie, that was amazing. What are you going to do next? And I said, you know, sort of like when you walk off the field Super Bowl, and they yeah. say, hey, that was yeah. awesome. Next you know, year. We're, going to the, we're going to Disney World. I said, you know what? If we can do that in three weeks, what can we do in a year if we really gave it? Really thought and purpose and intention. I said, I'm going to do a race. Mm-hmm. A race for a soldier. And I'm going to make it big. Maybe it'll be a half marathon. I don't know. But we're going to do a race. We're going to raise awareness. And we're going to bring attention. And we're going to help our soldiers. And that's all I know. So then when I told my friend Sue that, and I told my grief and loss counselor that, um, they said, well, you got to go see Miguel Galeana at Route 16. Mm-hmm. you got to meet Miguel. Yeah. So then I met Miguel. <laughs> and I started knocking on doors. And I started introducing myself. And nobody would say no. And that was the formation of the first race for a soldier, slated then for 2011. And um, I got this committee of 30, 35. There were friends and family and new people and old people. And then I would start talking to people at the Tides. I got support. I got board members. I got sponsors. I got interested runners. I got volunteers. I got military. If you look like you gave one iota about how we should respond to this epidemic of despair and of hopelessness, then you're my person. And uh, I was able to give them really great food service, but at the same time, the messaging, that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you do the race. Yeah. And then... What, what happens then in the last couple of years? Like, how has it continued to grow? How, what's the goal? Sure. But I just want to say the, the, the one event that wasn't in my heart until I went back to New York. So I have this idea for a race. Mm-hmm. I get this committee. Sue lets us, Sue Brayton at the Wesleyan lets us uh, have a room every, mm-hmm. all the time, anytime for a conference room. We never have to pay for it. Um, she's just been such a stalwart supporter of me personally in my journey um, with the amazing God that here has heard every tear, but also just my walk in life. She makes me a better person, and she's just been, I can't say enough of, but there's, there's Sue Brayton, and there's this extension of family that have just been great. 
So my son-in-law invites me back to uh, New York today, at Waldorf Astoria, to, to uh, be present at the National Bible Awards dinner. And because he knew that I was, this idea was in my head. So this is November of 2010. So I go back there. I sit with my daughter and my son-in-law. I'm with all these mucky mucks at this incredible place called the Waldorf. And I have no idea who the guest speaker is, mm -hmm. but my son-in-law does. He knows he's a Navy SEAL. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking around. I'm pretty, really impressed with how beautiful this is, and I'm excited about this. I'm getting, and I'm saying, God, I'm sitting here, and you know, what is all this about? Then they introduce the speaker. His name is Jason Redmond, Navy SEAL. Um, he had been shot in the face, so the whole side of his face was totally gone, mm -hmm. and he had other injuries. He was a friend of Chris Kyle. He was a badass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he got up there and he told a story of how God met him on the battlefield, and this is 35 surgeries away from what he's about to be. So this is a fairly new injury, catastrophic injury for him. This is 2010, I think his injury was in 808. So it was in that moment when I got to hear Jason, he had such a profound effect on me. He talked about overcoming, he talked about um, you know, fighting depression and fighting all the reasons why he should fail and how everybody had given up on him, that his life was over. And, and of course his Navy SEAL life was over. And then how he was going to respond to his family and friends and what that looked like and, and how God walked him through that darkness. And, and I said, that's it. That's it. The race is not enough. i got to have a prayer breakfast. i got to have, because I had done a, a mm -hmm. breakfast of champions for my kids with the summer camp years ago. So I sort of had it in my wheelhouse. But I'm thinking it's a prayer breakfast and I'm going to invite soldiers to tell their stories of overcoming, of, of, of hope, and healing, and empowerment, and enlightenment, and so that's that started that year too. Is that it wasn't enough, and so I just started knocking on doors again and inviting warriors that I knew, and um, so the prayer breakfast and the race sort of went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And then as we and I didn't know five people would show up to the race or yeah. to the prayer breakfast. Well, fifteen hundred people showed up to the race, and to the prayer breakfast we were totally full. At full capacity. Well, maybe not full, but what we knew is full. So there was easily 300 plus people there, um, which was pretty amazing since it was just word of mouth and nobody had heard of the speakers. And, you know, people sort of, it's not really politically um, correct to say a prayer breakfast. Everybody wanted me to change no. the name. I said, no, I'm not changing it. So I never have, and I'm not going to. But um, so that happened. So then... You know, there were members of the board that said, you know, we need a golf tournament. I said, I want nothing to do with a golf tournament. <laughs> they are so labor intensive. They'll burn out every good person that's on our team. And they'll walk, yeah. they'll run, not walk away from it. Uh, but this one board member who is an avid golfer and his son is Scott, or his name is Scott Langlow. He, it was his idea, so I can blame him for it. And then his son, Alex Langlow, who's a firefighter with Gig Harbor, he worked with me at the Tides as a bartender. And I knew he saw the court really well. And I needed him on my logistics team, so he came on for the race. So that's how I, I just saw a little talent in somebody now saying, hey, oh, by the way, I, I need you for this event. Would you consider it? And so they all came on, and most of them are still with us. But Scott had this idea about doing a, a golf tournament. I said, you know what, Scott? Okay. 
and and he did he did an amazing golf tournament and it's continued to get better and better we did take a break from it for a year because it is so labor intensive mm -hmm. and then packy reader took it on these last two years um he loves golf he's a veteran um you know he, he has an absolute passion for for it and i think you know i i guess we'll do it again this year i mean i know he wants to i i think he probably needs more people to come on and support him because he's also running a business and mm -hmm. got a family and like you know if you're going to do this and you say yes to it then you got to make sure the folks that do it that are not getting paid to do it have the kind of support and infrastructure and that's the part that the foundation we've grown with these events and it's really just been myself and Kim who's our administrative assistant who just retired so we're at this crossroads now we have these four incredible events um, with a lot of volunteers, but we're at a crossroads where we have to make some big decisions about um, salary for some development people, some, you know, maybe we're at that place, well, I know we are, and it's a board discussion and we're having it, And um, but in 2019, in order to keep doing what we want to do and what our goals are and what our mission is, I, I can't tap dance alone anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't mean to say that I'm the only one here, but we need to pay for some positions that can give us the kind of support. So it doesn't fall on our board. Help. We need full-time help yeah. so that it doesn't fall on our board members because they are selfless. Mm -hmm. They are wonderful, but they're all, there's only one of them, that's two of them that are retired. The rest of them all have, you know, jobs and families. And so we're at that place, but you asked about what we're doing and where we're going. And, you know, we've, we've given away Three hundred thousand plus in the last eight years to area holistic and alternative programs, um, equine therapy, uh, growing veterans, um, service dogs, mountain climbing expeditions, um, heartbeat for warriors. Um, um, oh gosh, I'm sort of blanking, but there's there's ten or fifteen different organizations that are very well intentioned. Um, and we've been supporting them. Sometimes checks of 2,500, 5,000, 12,000, 15,000. And we've looked at that as a wonderful opportunity to really make a difference. But what we've learned, as I've learned about other programs around the country and talking to a lot of people um, where the needs really are, is we've decided that we're gonna create more of the programs of our own, or we're gonna support programs that are really strength-based in nature. Not to say that the equine therapy isn't, or the, the service dogs, or any of those, they're all good. But we are seeing that there's great value in a workshop, post-traumatic growth workshop, mm -hmm. that we've defined, and we've researched, and we've studied. And Suzanne Kirsch, who was my grief and loss counselor, mental health professional, um, is about to lead our first workshop at Aaron's Key on October 13th, and I have to date, 25 men and women signed up, nice. some first responders as well, because what we know is that our police and our firefighters need it, need this help as well. Mm -hmm. And we believe there's room at the table for them as well. Our focus, of course, is veterans, but there's room for everybody. So that's happening, and we're going to do more in 2019. And I've already talked to some outstanding warriors that are also seeing a great need for growth workshops that incorporate learning about how the brain works, learning about your family of origin, 
what happened to you when you were five and six and twelve? Mm. How is that convoluting with your lawyer generational you bet. stuff too? Yeah. Um, learning that you've got your military family or your first responder family who is as meaningful and valuable to you as your biological family, and how do you marry the two? Because there's value and worth in both, but the two, you know, they're different worlds, and um, you might operate a little bit differently. Anyway, there's a lot of psychology, yeah. and then incorporating good nutrition, incorporating ways to self-regulate as opposed to self-medicating, mm -hmm. and that's something that I did. I definitely self-medicated. All of my family has to try to cope with this incredible loss. So I can only imagine you know what some of our other warriors and we know that in that veteran community uh, there's a great propensity for addiction and alcoholism mm -hmm. drug addiction all sorts of addictions financial issues uh, emotional social issues screaming at the kids screaming at your wife yeah. uh, you know there's just all these addictions so workshops are needed um, we can't send everybody to retreats. I just wrote a check for $50,000 two days ago. We're going to send six responders, two first responders, one police, one um, uh, fire um, battalion chief, and four warriors to the Boulder Crest retreat at the end of November. Mm -hmm. Our plan is to do two in 2019, continue the workshops. And then we've uh, incorporated a monthly huddle at Heron's Key as well. They give us a stinking great deal. It's a beautiful facility. And um, we do uh, monthly veteran huddles where come as you are, any age, any, um, any theater of conflict, whether you're a Vietnam vet or 9-11 or somewhere in between or before or after, um, and you come as you are and we meet you there and we just check your temperature, your barometer. We, what's going on in your world? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Really? Are you good? And then they start to peel away the onion a little bit. And these monthly huddles have been a great source of connection because that's the one thing that we know. I've had three-star generals tell me, um, one in particular who just uh, retired a couple years ago, two years ago, said the scariest, the scariest drive that I did in my whole 25 years of service in the Army was that drive off of Joint Base Lewis McCoy. Mm -hmm. Because it meant I was driving for the familiar and what I knew and what I honored and valued and who respected me and loved me and gave me that kind of feedback is walking off into the civilian world and not knowing what I was coming into. So, you know, um, we've got a lot of work to do and we're excited about the work that we're doing because I think it's tangible and I think you can hang your hat on some of the things that we've been doing. and. And it requires something in everybody. And that's part of what this whole thing was about, the permission to start dreaming foundation. Yes, we want to give our warriors permission to start dreaming and think of a life of service after service and, and help them see forward that we they matter to us still and we need them. We need them in our communities. We need them in our churches. We need them in our families, in our marriages. We need them in our country, writing policy, running for office, being a part of the bigger picture, or just still serving in some capacity, but your service doesn't end with your military service because there's something in their DNA that's different than the rest of ours. There's something in a man or woman that would sign up and strap their, their boots on and, their, and they're, they're protectors. So we need to help our freedom protectors and it's up to us and we need to incorporate the community to be a part of that solution because it's not going to come from the institutions. They can do 
some things. Mm -hmm. The VA is making some improvements, but if you're going to hold your breath to the kind of work that the internal, very personal work that needs to be done and the response from us as community, as civilians, that is the part that we need to work. That's our responsibility. We make a covenant to them when they raise their right hand. So what can we do on a daily basis? What can we do? I see, um, gosh, I think it's an even bigger issue. I work with hundreds of people throughout the month, and what I see is that a lot of adults are struggling with depression or anxiety, and then we have, we're raising kids, yeah, they're and then amazing. we have spouses that might be in a stressful job or have served, or mm-hmm. all of those things yeah. can happen. So what do we do? Like, well, how I, can we help our kids? Yeah. How can... Well, I think service, we talk about service, and, you know, obviously you got to help yourself before you can help others. But this is what I know. Before you know how to help yourself necessarily, you need to step out of your way, step out of your own way. And you need to do just anything for the person in front of you. And it might be that you're making a pie for the old lady across the street because she just lost her husband. I mean, it's that small. Mother Teresa said, you know, we're called to help others, but numbers are, don't matter. Help the person right in front of you. And even when I didn't know how to help myself, I there was something in me that said, say yes to volunteering, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Whoever asks you first, whether it's your church, whether it's a friend, whether whatever it is, say yes to it. That was my inner voice. I get back from Texas. I barely have a place to stay. I haven't really figured it out. I get a call from an old friend, Randy Novak, and he had started uh, Shirts Across America. He was taking Jesuit classes or Jesuit schools and students down to New Orleans to rebuild homes from Hurricane Katrina. He didn't know anything about my divorce. He didn't know anything about Kyle. We hadn't been in touch for five years. He said, Leslie, I know I'm calling you out of the blue, but I need another mentor. I need a a maternal figure. I'm taking down 15 kids from Bellarmine, and I need you to go to New Orleans and and live in 102-degree humidity and um, live in a church and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and and warm lemonade for 10 days while we build homes. Will you say yes? And I said yes. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was getting into. But the most amazing things happened to me. I sat with these high school kids. I sat with Chris Gavin, the principal. I sat with these people in this community in New Orleans who had lost everything still um, from uh, Hurricane Katrina. And I sat in a gospel church a catholic gospel church and they were singing to me and praising the lord and they were so grateful for what they didn't have and their joy was amazing and that for me just i mean that was another god moment so when i came back from the 10 days i came into the tides man and i was just on fire so i guess i'm i'm trying to illustrate that because when you're hurting and when there's no purpose and you feel pain and you have no sense of where is your place in this world? Do the next indicated step, which is help the person in front of you, because I truly believe that happiness, the greatest correlation and the greatest indicator is a sense of gratitude. And we get gratitude by helping other people because there's just no way you can help somebody else and not see the gratitude and not feel it yourself. You're doing it for them, but it's really helping yourself. So you start there, and then you start 
about getting honest about what you're doing and how you're taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, nutrition, um, who are you surrounding yourself with? The five people in your life, are they life affirmers? Mm -hmm. Are they lifting you up? Are they sucking you dry? Are they a cancer? Are they victims? So you gotta decide, you're gonna be a victim or you're gonna be a victor. And so you start identifying and you start educating yourself. And I read every self-help book there was. I mean, and I had every every book on grief and all that. Yeah. But honestly, the, the component for every single one of them is get out of your own way and start helping because you get really comfortable with that depression. Yeah. That's your blanket. You get the really the struggle bus. Yeah. So we like to be on the struggle bus. Yeah. So yeah. let your strength become the struggle you know let learn from the struggle and let it become your strength and there's really good um there's good science on it there's good psychology on it there's good um you know studies on it we're that's what we're going to be incorporating with the post-traumatic growth and it's it's really te textbook but um we're called to be servants we're called to serve god and serve others if i've learned anything I that that's all i know that's using the textbooks to learn are people who want to be in that profession, not necessarily the people who. You know what? And some of the sickest people are trying to help sick people. Yeah. You know, I think that was my first instinct too. In fact, now that you you jog a memory in me, when I was trying to figure out, okay, Leslie, what are you going to do? I um, went up to a university and I was going to see if I could um, get um, a graduate degree in psychology. Yeah. And, and because I was reading so many of these books, and I said, okay, I've figured it out, haven't I? Okay, I can do this grief thing. I can do this loss thing. Okay, maybe I can be, you know, but I was going about it all wrong because that I would have never learned what I've learned if I hadn't gotten back into the trenches. I needed to get my butt back into the trenches and helping people because that's what brought me the greatest degree of satisfaction. You know, you need to let your life speak. There's a great book by Parker Palmer. It's very inexpensive. I highly recommend it. He's a great writer. Let your life speak. Look at those things in your life that have brought you joy and have brought you the greatest pain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's the common denominator? The joyful ones are probably where you've been helping someone or, you you know, you've been able to impact their life. And... Um, you know, I as I you know, what's the million dollar question? I guess everyone's got to figure that out. But I can pretty much spot when someone is really trying to move forward in a healthy way, and someone who really wants to stay back there in that victim mentality. And sadly, there's far too many of us. We live in a very narcissistic world, and we have a culture that almost um, celebrates victimhood. Mm -hmm. And so if you buy into that, um, you know, you compete for the Yeah, who can be off. sadder? Who can be <laughs> the most pathetic? And um, General Mattis, who um, actually we put a great little speech of his at the end of our most recent video mm -hmm. because he talks about it and he says it really well. And, you know, um, our soldiers are not victims, but they come home and oftentimes they'll either play that role or or people will play that role for them, and it becomes what's most expedient, most uncomfortable. We're not in the victim game. We're not giving free shit away, okay? 
we expect you, if you're going to be involved with a foundation organization, it, it's not free. Uh, you need to, to get in the game, and you need to do the work. If you do the work, you're going to get well, and you're going to help other people, and that's what we expect of you. So our expectations are high. Same with volunteers. Is um, We value our volunteers so much. There is something in what they're doing as they come alongside of us. They see that authenticity as well. Um, we're not a perfect organization, but I think one thing you can say is that we're not that much different than we were when we started. We care deeply about our veterans. We care about their mental health and their mental fitness, and we're trying to find strength-based solutions, and we still make mistakes, and we still limp along with the, with the in small group of people. Um, but I'd rather limp along doing really great things than you know, being slick and have all the answers. Uh, we're still asking the right questions, and we seem to be attracting a lot of amazing people. And um, and so I say the more the merrier. Let's come on and do this. If you honor a soldier, you help all soldiers. If you get a soldier healthy, if you get a first responder healthy, their families are going to get healthy. Their children are going to see them healthy. Um, yeah. Um, Does does it get easier to hear the stories? We need to hear stories. more stories. Okay. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, no, uh, no. I mean, I was reduced to tears just over the weekend. I, After we have our two events, we, we get a little bit of splash in the media. And, you know, mm -hmm. we get some uh, interviews. And we've got uh, Cairo and King are sort of tracking me right now, and they mm -hmm. want to come out and do a story. And, and so I want to be very thoughtful about that. I'm not just going to introduce them to any soldier. Um, you know, we're not looking for sensationalism here. We're, we're, we're not looking for pathetic stories. We're looking to, to lift up these families that are really doing the work. But, but that all said, um, I have had the greatest privilege of meeting um, people that have sought me out knowing my own story mm -hmm and um, have had to listen to them and walk alongside of their story. And it's amazing how it invokes in me still, and thank God it does, mm -hmm. that I haven't gotten jaded or that I haven't gotten uh, hardened to my own um, sadness. And it, it's just like that most recently. Uh, so I have this beautiful story, Saudi McVeigh. She is a med tech in the Air Force. She um, has been serving the Air Force for 37 years. Her husband is a, a veteran. Her daughter is a retired Army officer who had to step down because of her, her, her trauma. Um, she has another son that's in school, and then her son Bryce took his life in a Spanaway parking lot last year um, when she was in Afghanistan uh, on deployment. And he'd been told by the VA that he was making his stuff up and he shot himself in a Spanaway parking lot. This was September 4th of 2017. She'd run the race for a soldier a couple of years in 15 and 16, because she's a runner and um, an incredible woman. I, I have so much respect for this woman. And she's active duty. She's basically a doctor in the sky, although she won't say that, but she commands this unit. And okay. she's, she's a medical technician, so they keep everybody alive in this hospital that's in the form of a C-130. Mm -hmm. And they travel all over the world. They prepare for disasters. They prepare for the worst of the worst. They're training all the time. She gets the call that Bryce had taken his life. They get her on a plane. She gets back. 
This is September of last year. It's the day of the prayer breakfast of last year. And she calls me out of the blue. She tried to contact me on Facebook, couldn't get through. And my social media said, Leslie, you need to call this woman. She's been trying to get a hold of you. Her son took his life. I said, okay, okay. So I call her, and I'm getting ready for the prayer breakfast. And she's calling me at 5 o'clock in the morning wanting to know what she should wear for her son's funeral. And she told me the story. And Saudi and I have become friends. I, I made a pledge that morning to walk alongside of her this next year and help her find her voice and help her find her strength and her purpose and her her bravery. Now, I think she's very brave because she kept working. I had to quit. But that all said, so a year later, um, I introduced her to Michael Reagan, who's the um, author and illustrator of the Fallen Heroes Project. He lives in Edmond, mm -hmm. and he has drawn portraits of fallen heroes, first responders for ever since his Vietnam days. And he's a, he's a national treasure, and he lives in Edmonds. And he drew a portrait of Kyle. It sits in my place at my apartment. I see it every day, every night. It is such a gift to me. I would have never had that done on my own. And it's about this big. I mean, it's beautiful. It, it, it commands a room. So I introduced him to, to Saudi, and I sent Bryce's pictures. And I said, Michael, would you... I hate to ask you because I know you've done over 4,000 and you're doing them every day and it exhausts you. But would you do one for my friend Saudi? So I got permission from Saudi. We went there a couple of weeks ago to Edmonds and he presented this portrait to her and spoke to her about being a Gold Star mom. Because Gold Star moms who have sons or daughters who have taken their lives as opposed to being killed in action, there is a stigma. And there is a little bit of shame in us. Our sons served the same war, but the end result, the outcome was different. And so there's a less than noble feeling sometimes. It's not it's not correct, it's not right, but it is what we feel. And, and there is a segment of the Gold Star movement, if you will, or the Gold Star organization. Um, very small segment, but there is a segment that reminds us that their sons died in action and our sons took their lives. So Michael decided he was gonna dispel that and he did it in a way and he had he brought in the gold star moms from the state of Washington and Idaho and the Pacific Northwest and we were all there. I didn't see this coming and and Michael's speech to Saudi and basically he was saying it to me too was the most remarkable I mean I was practically saluting <laughs> at the end, you know, it's just like Oh my gosh, Michael, you know, and what it did for Saudi and for me. And then, and so she came to the race and she spoke before the 2,000 people there. And I asked her to because I said, Saudi, you need to tell Bryce's story. Mm -hmm. You can make it whatever you want. I have confidence in you. I'm you're, you, you're a commander. You lead. Come on. You can yeah. do this. But she needed to and she thanked me for it. And then Rose Minettes. Rose Minettes is from. Michigan lives in Ann Arbor. She heard about the race for a soldier after Stephen took his life two years ago. She looked online to see, my son just killed himself. He served, he was a Marine, he was a badass. Nobody cares about my son, you know. Everyone turned him away and this is what happened. And somebody listened to me. So she gets online and she finds us. She calls me two years ago. She goes, Leslie, you don't know me. My name's Rose. And she tells the story. And I said, Rose, I said, come be with us. We, we've got a We've got a race coming. And she goes, I'm going to. I said, you are? She goes, yes. 
So she stays at the Westland Inn. She brings her two adult children that are just struggling. And last year she came, they ran for Stephen. This year she came, they brought more of their town. Mm -hmm. I put her in front of the 2000 and she spoke too. And if you could read her emails to me of what this movement, of what we've started out here has just done for these two moms. So when you ask the question, it, does it get hard for you to hear the stories? And I, my first response is, I want more stories. I want more stories of moms and families who are shouting out loud that we've got, we've got an epidemic and it doesn't just, it's not just our soldiers, it's not just our first responders, it's in our yeah. communities, it's pervasive in our high schools, in our middle schools. And so I think we can all help each other, but we need to be, I don't know if proud is the right word, but we need to be empowered to tell these stories. The stigma. Um, that the stigma, and let's deal with it, and I know so many um, uh, warriors who now have either had a gun in their mouth and thank God someone pulled it out and they got the help. They're taking their their victories and they're incorporating them into training mental health professionals as to what is trauma. Trauma doesn't discriminate. And, and we all have trauma in our lives, varying degrees, but trauma is trauma. And so, you know, the brain gets stuck and we think it can't get fixed, but we know it's different. It is malleable. There are, are ways to rewire and retrain. And then, you know, there's a medical community that just wants to medicate. So I think if we all talk about it more, if we love each other more, if we have great compassion for each other and don't just slip it under the rug or, or pretend it doesn't exist, I think that, you know, we need to come together in all of our communities. You know? I think so even with uh, kids. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just tragic to me that there is such a um, like we don't talk about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, we don't, don't want to believe what's right it. or wrong. You know what? We don't want to believe it. When I first felt, but I'm not sure not talking about it is helping no. anything. <laughs> I, I I think it needs needs to be a more holistic way of of uh, speaking to our children. Mm. I th I've seen where in some school districts across the country they're incorporating yoga and meditation. Yeah. And you know what? I think there's a place for that. Since we've replaced God into schools, and, and maybe, maybe you know, that, that's another subject. But God, you know, forbid that we even think that there's a moment of prayer for anyone or, or a child that just needs to settle their heart down and, and maybe just a, send a prayer up or a meditation time or, or, or some, um, you know, some, some quiet time and um, in a meaningful way. Um, I, I think that's helpful. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we can bring um, real conversation and dialogue and then real strength-based programs. You know, life is going to always throw stuff at you. We don't need to rescue our kids from bad things that happen. We've got to teach and coach them better how to deal with them. And we've got too many moms and dads that are just rescuing kids from the consequences of their actions. Now, trauma... A divorce, a death, you know, some really tragic things like that. Um, there needs to be counseling and help with that. But the good news is, is that you can overcome it, even at 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 12. But I don't know that it's being handled the right way. And, um, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't have a Ph.D. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a mental health pro professional. 
but God knows I've gone to tons of them, and I know what does work and what doesn't work, and I have a lot of respect for the warriors that I've met that are now working in the mental health field um, and being able to apply some of their their stuff. Um, but I think as a community, I think, you know, I think it needs to be an intentional um, direction to helping our young people deal with trauma in their life and depression. I don't think social media helps, and I, I, I know there's some good that can come out of it, but I think the studies are coming out that there's far too much screen time. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, and of course I'm 66, so of course that probably feels very antiquated to most people, but we did our living and our learning and our teaching outside. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we had TV, but there were four stations. And then even as my own kids and MTV came into it, I was very strict on screen time. We didn't have, That's we didn't, up, you know, yeah. we did. And and I, I think if we don't, I think the consequences are going to be severe. And, you know, we're even having these conversations now with my six-year-old and my three-year-old. And there is some screen time, and I'm talking with my daughter about it. I said, so have you guys talked about, even though they're three and six, mm -hmm. you know, they already know how to operate my phone just from watching me. You know, like, that's sort of scary. And some of them are on the screen all day at school, too. Exactly. So, they're, yeah. They're not doing art or outside. They're not doing, <laughs> out, they're not doing outside. Their playtime is different. Um, mm -hmm. And while I think that, obviously, there's great genius in computers and, and that, um, I think we need to really be careful and, and we need to pump on the brakes um, and see what kind of damage um, can be uh, left to its own devices if, you know, if parents don't pay more attention. Um, and psychologists and teachers and all of that. And I, if I were a parent right now, I would be just as badass as I was when I was telling my kids that MTV that the reality world of that MTV has nothing to do with reality, and you're not going to watch it in my home. Because I didn't see anything good coming from most of what was happening out there, but they didn't like it. you know. But, you know, guess what? You don't have to like your parents right now. And your kids aren't supposed to love you necessarily right now. And, you you know, it just if you think you're going to be their friend and please them all the time, then you're going to be in for a lot of heartache. So... I mean, that's me, grandma, mom now giving my yeah. unsolicited advice about parenting, but um, get them outdoors. Amen. That's what we were talking about before we walked in, is I just think we can all do a better job. Mm -hmm. We can all just do a better job. Yeah. With our own shit. Our, yeah. You know, yeah. stop passing our crap on yeah. to our kids. It's and harder. Well, I know. I see so many moms sometimes that, you know, they, and, you know, with the high divorce rate, you know, and it's 50-50 chance now. Maybe it's even more than that. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of divorced um, parents. You have a lot of kids that are learning how to manage a lot of it on. So you have a lot of moms in the workforce and dads in the workforce. And so there's less time in front of them. So you do pass them off to, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying this is the consequences of not being in their lives on as much because you have other responsibilities. And um, I actually think we're going to go through a cycle. Yeah. And we're going to get back to I, like, I, the I, 50s. Yeah, I think. Where it, we're yeah. going to find that, like, 
it's just not worth it. best for one person to take care of the yeah. kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We grew up where it was just like my generation yeah. is all work. We're mm -hmm. all going to work hard. We're going to get I lots know. of stuff. And we're going to just high speed. And we'll just pay for everything. And then slowly you're like, mm, maybe we want to be around our kids. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think we're going to go another 10 years and we're going to realize that, yeah, it's actually best if yeah. somebody does take care of the kids there's and it's a okay. consistent per and how much stuff do you need i mean how much is enough you know and well, i think the more people go through hard stuff yeah. and life changes where then you realize i mean we haven't our young people haven't been through a recession yet mm -hmm. so they're just you know a lot of pretty soon when their cars and their mm -hmm. mom and dad's houses are taken away from them or there's death or real yeah. illness or sickness in the family, then that changes things. Well, and you look at kids that are raised in just even east of the mountains. I'm not saying that they're all perfect kids over there, but compared to here where there's more agriculture and there's more responsibilities, yeah. um, where kids really have to, you know, they're working on the farms or, or they're they're part of the industry that their their parents are in. And maybe it's not a east and, and west thing, but I think the more you can incorporate your kids in just the livelihood of the home, there's a reason that certain cultures where the kids have chores and they're a part of the greater welfare, you know, they value they value family, they value hard work, they value the elders in their homes. Um, there's, there's values that I think are starting to disappear that are, are absolutely critical to a health and well-being. Of, of us as individuals and as of families. I mean, I just think we need to, you know, what's working in some of those cultures and what's missing mm -hmm. here? And, you know, there's just so much entitlement. There's so much entitlement, and that's not going to really serve you well, when, like you said, when you're out in the real world trying to pay that rent and trying to figure it out for your own. If you haven't been asked to do that prior to that, good luck on you. Yeah. You know, if dad and mom have so much money that they don't make you suffer the consequences of the actions, I think there's going to be hell to pay down the road. But, you know, one thing we talk about going outside, and that's something we've learned with our veterans, is that so many of them have found when they're dealing with trauma and death and, and just um, that hole in their heart, and they want to go off the grid, mm -hmm. or they just want to go outside, it's, it's been extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. And I think we find that at our at-risk at kids, marginalized kids, kids in the inner cities who don't get to go outside, they on these programs that take them outside, maybe for hikes or camping or just it's a part of your regular routine. Yeah. And it forces families to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. It forces, you know, camping is such a great idea. Put those phones away. Let's talk to each other. Let's open up a book. Let, 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 let's get back to, you know, next time you walk into a restaurant, it's tragic when you look at that each table where the families are. Yeah. Everyone's on their phone. Yeah. Everyone's on their phone. I mean, I, I mean, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, but um, I try not to be. I try when I'm with my family, I, unless I'm working, but if I'm with them, I, I put it in my purse. I put it in my glove compartment. Um, I know we all rely on it for different things, but I think we need to take a step back. Mm -hmm. You know, 
um, all the cyberbullying that's going on. You know, I read something the other day of how many kids are keeping so many secrets from their parents on their, either on their phone or on their, on their social media, and how they do it. They're really good yeah. at it. Because um, well, mom will say you're not going to do that. A toddler. Yeah, they have multiple accounts. It's yeah. Not, I mean, yeah. so how is it, that? It, well, how yeah, is, I. I tell parents when they talk, because we do a lot of stuff on social media, yeah. but from marketing, yeah, yeah. marketing's sure. my background, so that's, yeah. you know, I do it, um, but you can't have your kid on something that you don't either are on or not familiar with, and that's what's happening, is that, like, my one daughter is now on Instagram, but I'm on Instagram, mm -hmm. and I'm in there, and mm -hmm. I know how to work it still mm -hmm. better than she does so right far. Now do, right yeah. now I do. But I wouldn't, I couldn't have her on there if I had no idea what it was. Well, and so many parents aren't, don't have your, your, your strength in that. Um, I met recently the, um, the founder of um, the Guardian Group. And they're out of Bend, Oregon, and he's a he's a veteran. He was a, a ranger, and a lot of special forces guys are on his team. And they're out of Bend, and they're trying to eradicate the sex trafficking and the mm -hmm. human trafficking. And he said these predators are so good; um, they don't need to nab your child off the street. They're much better than that. They're getting through on the social media, and they're in, they're insidious that way, and 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 they're so evil. And they're so good at what they do. And so not only are they, uh, the Guardian Group and other groups like them, um, getting really into education part of it and going to the schools and going to churches and going to parents' groups and saying, look, yeah. if you think that your daughter is only doing this, this, and this, I'm going to show you the back door here mm -hmm. and how they're coming in. And people are in tears, you know, like yeah. he was sharing with me. He says, they had no idea. But... If you're not savvy, and we're not, most of us aren't, you know, um, you know, I mean, it's real. It's it, it's a real threat. Mm -hmm. And so I think with young kids and, and the bullying and the depression and all of that, they're getting fed uh, sort of a, you know, it, it's getting fed to them through the social media um, in, a, in a way that, you know, we, we keep our kids away from candy and poison. Yeah. And we, we teach them to not go across the street unless looking both ways. You know, we do all of those wonderful things to protect our children, but we're probably missing the biggest danger. And I know there's writings on it. I know there's more psychology going on, but I think it's probably the, the, the we're reaching a critical mass where parents better really wake up, um, you know. Right. All right. Well, Leslie. Like you're just getting started. Do you feel like that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, in life, like this is a new life. No, oh, I mean, no, just in, I mean, yeah. like in general. Like I get the feeling that, like, well, I you're just so. getting I mean, started. It is the last chapter of my life. It is the last season of my life, and and I do feel like every chapter of your life, every season, we're always looking for purpose. Yeah. And I do know that um, I feel very purposeful. Um, and I just need to continue to um, get stronger and talented people alongside of me because I can only do a few things well. Um, and I need, in order to, to really make a difference here, is to continue to do that. So, yeah, um, I, I think that the chapter ahead and what we're doing right now is, is, is really hopeful.
So we finish, it seems kind of silly now, but Thank actually you. I think it might be really interesting yeah. we finish every session with a question. Oh boy. And the question, no, this is going to be great. I'm actually really excited for this, is that we ask every guest, what would you tell your 15-year-old self? No, oh, I love that question. That's a great question. Especially for today. I yeah. found that it's just, it's been cool. Um, you know what? I know what I would tell my 15-year-old self, I think. Um, I've made poor decisions in the romance department. My uh, Somehow along the way, I got confused about what love is and what my love language is. And I think I had a great high school boyfriend. Great. Just amazing. He was my savior. But after that, I made some really bad choices. I was always, um, you know, a leader in my class. Mm-hmm. I made good grades. I didn't make great grades. But I always had a sense of leadership. My mom instilled that into me. Um, but I lost my sense of self when I fell in love, when I gave myself to a man for the first time. So somewhere, I mean, if I can be frank, uh, the sex and the soul of the woman, I got confused. And I think I gave too much of myself and my soul to the men in my life that I fell deeply, I fell hard, and I fell deeply in love with, uh, to the point where I couldn't see the forest for the trees, and I lost myself in them to please them, and so I became an enabler, and I, I became codependent. And that has happened probably every time with every um, love uh, experience or uh, relationship that I've had. And it's cost me a lot. So it's not a, it's, I, I mean, you ask the question, that's what I'm going to say to my 15-year-old self, that I would have saved more of myself as I started to become a young woman and get involved intimately with men um, because I allowed them to rob a part of my soul and I lost who I was. So that's what I would say. I'd say, wake up, girl. Um, and I don't know what I would have done with, I mean, I, I don't know if I would have listened. It wasn't that I was ever promiscuous. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, because I don't think that's ever a good thing. I think that that robs women of the very essence of who they are. So um, I would have said, keep finding the same kind of boyfriends as your high school boyfriends. <laughs> but I didn't. And um, and it, has, it brought me four wonderful children. So I'm not, you know, you have to look back at every... Uh, experience and see it, see the lessons and the loss and evaluate them and then see what was your contribution to that beautiful mess that ended that way. Mm -hmm. So take responsibility. But yeah, honestly, I think that's what I would have said to myself is um, go lightly into that. Yeah. Because it takes too much time to retrieve it. <laughs> it's like, you be know, cautious. Be, ca- be, be more gentle. Be more cautious. Look at the red flags and believe those red flags. Yeah. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Yeah, I think we can all do. Listen to that inner Listen to that inner voice. Mm-hmm. I try to tell my girls that. Like, trust your gut. Whatever that first thought was, yeah. it's, it's true. Because he was telling you who he was on that first date. And you didn't listen because you had enough love to change him. And guess what? Mm. 
you, you don't. You don't have enough love to change anybody. They have to change themselves. So yeah, that's my uh, that's my advice to to Leslie at fifteen. All right. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. You've here. been really gracious. Yay. Really been gracious. Awesome. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. gosh! Did you think I only had so one cup of coffee this morning? Oh my gosh! Was that too much? I don't that know. was amazing.